0: Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the Mystical Underground.
1: Welcome to the Mystical Underground. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. and Trish McGregor. And our producer and tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book, Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. Trish's latest novel is Skin Shifters. Rob's latest novel is Toolpuzz.
2: Our guest today is Juliet Trail. She's the managing director of the Coincidence Project, which is dedicated to advancing the use and understand understanding of coincidence, synchronicity, serendipity, and Juliet, I can never pronounce this word. Simul- 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 yeah. Simulpathity, okay. (laughs) Uh, Juliet is also founder and director of Courageous Compassion Connection, an initiative dedicated to bringing contemplative practices and approaches to diverse groups and individuals in the service of resilience, wholeness, healing, and compassion for all beings. She has 19 years of experience in leadership organizational development and contemplative education in higher education at the University of Virginia and New Mexico State University. Her PhD from UVA focused on network enablers, empowering individuals who enable the success of others across their professional roles and networks. She's a trained mindful mindful self-compassion teacher and is also a poet and singer who explores the intersections of creativity and contemplation in her two bands, Unheard Sirens, Inc. and Phoenix Noir. And now, Juliet, you're going to have to sing for us. I didn't know you were a singer. (laughs) Welcome, Juliet.
3: Thank you for having me. Okay.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. So, Juliet, you were former director of education for the University of Virginia's Contemplative Sciences Center and taught a course on contemplation. Now, when I went to college, I don't think there were any courses in contemplation and definitely not a department of contemplation. Is this something unique to UVA or has it spread to other universities?
3: It's definitely up and coming. It's kind of a new uh, movement uh, of activity within higher education than all types of universities. UVA is definitely, Leading the way along with a handful of others that have established centers. So those centers are able to have a bigger impact across the whole university. There are a lot of medical schools that have um, centers for mindfulness. UVA huh. has a separate school of medicine center for mindfulness. It also has a separate compassionate care initiative of the school of nursing. And -hmm. those both predate the place I worked, which was called contemplative sciences center. So, um, the one in the school of medicine is more than 20 years old. And, um, when Jon Kabat-Zinn, uh, came to, um, UMass and started doing a lot of work to, uh, get mindfulness-based stress reduction, Trained um, and taught and offered at hospitals for patients, and later for for healthcare providers. Um, it really started the, this whole movement, and UVA was one of the first um, centers to follow. Um, being trained by John Kabat-Zinn, um, John right. Shoreling, who was the founding director of that center, was trained by John Kabat-Zinn early on. So UVA has been there from the beginning of the wave of bringing meditation and other forms of contemplative practice into healthcare and into universities. There are places like UC Berkeley and Stanford, UC San Diego, University of Wisconsin, um, that all have established centers as well. Brown university has a lot of curriculum. You can do your, they don't call it a major. It's like a concentration there or something, but they have three different concentrations in contemplative areas. One is contemplative Mm -hmm. sciences, which focuses more on neuroscience of meditators, what it does to the body, what it does to the mind, or you can do contemplative studies, which is more like the liberal arts side, looking Mm -hmm. at history of religion, philosophy, poetry creative expression and then looking at what contemplation can do to enhance those fields or those ways of knowing
4: that's very Uh, cool
1: yeah i'd like to talk a little bit about some of these terms contemplation meditation mindfulness uh what's the difference between among them (laughs)
4: among them yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah um you know language is very flexible so some people use them as almost um meaning the same things yeah but But to to myself and and some of my colleagues that I've worked with, you know, meditation is uh, one type of contemplative practice. And then there are many other contemplative practices. So contemplative practice would be the broadest, most inclusive term. Meditation would be a type of pursuit. It can be a stillness activity where you sit and close the eyes. Mm -hmm. Although there are forms of moving meditation as well, like there's walking meditation, Um, Some people approach everything about yoga as a meditative practice, Mm
4: -hmm. focusing
3: on the breath, uh, centering the mind, stilling then bringing the awareness into the present moment. Um, And then there are things like the whirling dervishes, you know, and ecstatic dance and powwows of Native American peoples. Many Uh. indigenous indigenous practices involve aspects of of a meditative approach, um, all different kinds of contemplative practices. So you can use music. And art to access it, it doesn't have to only be the kind of silent, seated, still meditation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But my, mindfulness specifically is a type of meditation where the, the focus is to bring your attention into the present moment and to learn how to maintain your focus and awareness on the present moment as it unfolds. And mm-hmm. you try to do that with a specific uh, stance, a specific attitude. So you're seeking to be non-judgmental. And allowing whatever unfolds to unfold Mm -hmm. and to have more equanimity. So not flinching away or shying away from negative things, um, not clinging desperately to the positive things, but Mm -hmm. learning how to let go of pleasant and unpleasant as they arise and and just returning to the breath or returning to any place that you might focus your awareness in the present
1: moment. Yeah. Uh John Kabat-Zinn has written extensively on mindfulness. I've read a couple of his books. And- Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And it's, you know, so that is one type of meditation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And
3: then me- meditation is one type of contemplative practice. Yeah. So they kind of, they nest inside of each other.
2: Okay. Well, how did you decide to focus on compassion as the center of your contemplative work?
3: Um,
2: I think Besides I said, the fact that you're a Pisces. <laughs> ah, besides, this, yes
3: being a Pisces, I've definitely always had extremely high empathy and compassion practices help you to manage your your empathy and build healthy boundaries. And the difference between those two terms is that empathy is our ability to experience the pain of another. It's beyond sympathy. I can see you're in pain, but I feel separate from Mm -hmm. it. That's sympathy empathy is like if you're watching um, a children's soccer game and one of the kids gets a broken bone and goes down, everyone in the right. audience win- winces. You pull that limb in. You might even massage your own limb as if your yours is the one that's broken mm-hmm. or can be soothed. So there's this physical, emotional, mental, spiritual like connection to the suffering or pain of another. So that's empathy, but you're just in pain with them. So it's not Productive per se. And one of the reasons that caregivers and hospice workers and nurses and people that are providing care for a loved one who has a lot of needs um, may experience burnout is because they can be stuck in that empathy mode. A uh-huh. lot. So, hmm. compassion practice teaches you to get just enough distance to say, I'm here, I'm present, I'm not going anywhere. I, I really care that you're going through this. And I will do whatever I can to help alleviate this pain. What can I do to help? And sometimes all you can do to help is not abandon someone. You can't actually take away their pain. Um, Like people that work in hospice, you know, they're, they're bearing witness, they're providing company um, and there's nothing really they can do, but they can change the nature of the suffering or the fear Mm -hmm. um, that someone might be going through to find comfort in having, you know, not being alone and being seen and being accepted. So compassion is really trying to figure out what you can do to help relieve suffering and bring more joy. Cause I focus on both the suffering and the joy, not just suffering, suffering all the time, but, but you know, also what can we do to help give greater peace and equanimity in the world? What can we do to provide joy for ourselves and for others, you know, sympathetic joy. How do we increase all of these positive things? And for me, I think the reason that I decided to make it the focus of, of my career came from a really amazing conversation I had in 2016 with um, quite a well-known meditator named Matthew Ricard. And he's um, written books on compassion and altruism. He was originally a scientist in France who then left and became a monk and spent, you know, 20,000 or 30,000 hours in meditation, quite a master. And he was speaking, um, in San Diego at the mind and life Institute's, um, research symposium that they hold somewhere every other year. And, uh, he was the keynote speaker and I happened to bump into him after his talk, um, that he gave to the, there was about a thousand people there. And out of oh. a thousand people mingling in the nighttime, with like candle lit little tables and nibbles in this beautiful bay area of the hotel beside the water, you know, I'm just wandering around, kind of lost. I didn't really know anybody there. And I bump into the keynote speaker, Matthieu Ricard, and <laughs> have this, this amazing exchange with him. Um, My other work is with coincidences. So here you go. Here's a a beautiful coincidence that of, of the thousand people wandering in the night, and it might've been more like 1400. It really was a huge crowd. I bump into the speaker and we had this engaging conversation about compassion. So he had spoken during the talk. I was sitting in like the second row and I was just in rapt attention the entire time. Um, And he had said, you know, mindfulness itself is not the end. It's not the goal of what you're seeking. It's a pathway to begin Mm -hmm. the practice, but it's not the ultimate end of the practice. Really, the practice unfolds through mindfulness, being able to have control um, of your attention and direct your attention into the present, not get distracted and lost in our thoughts Uh. all the time. And, And through that practice of maintaining our awareness, we can attend to things like empathy and compassion. And if you only perfected mindfulness, you could become the perfect sniper for the military or an (laughs) assassin because you would, you would be perceiving every little change in wind. You would get more and more acuity at figuring out how far away your target was. And exactly what force is necessary to take Uh, them uh, out. I mean, mindfulness could make you absolutely the best assassin.
2: The invaluable (laughs) assassin. (laughs) Yes.
3: Yes. Yes. And, and, and that, as, as a possibility, what Matthew was saying in his talk was that's troubling. And Uh so we have to combine mindfulness with compassion training and really focus on the compassion because mindfulness has become very popular. So a lot of people kind of stop there. Uh And so I want to be in the kind of the next wave that says, and mindfulness and compassion Mm -hmm. and the compassion, because it would ask, it would force you to confront the question, should I be a sniper? Should I serve the military? Should uh-huh. I take life and be an and be an assassin? Uh, you know, and people might still answer that question, yes, because there are a huge range of human behaviors, even amongst people that are deeply contemplative. Um, so it's not saying that it suddenly fixes everything, but right. It, it always raises the moral question, what can I do to decrease the suffering among all beings? What can I do to serve best?
1: But the the, um, mindfulness the sniper mindfulness, that's a great uh, characteristic for a fiction character. Yeah, it really is.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so when I bumped into to Matthew, what he said to me, he says, do you mind talking for a minute? I said, no. <laughs> I was so nervous. <laughs> I had only just recently taken that job with, um, um, you know, helping to bring contemplation to University of Virginia. And so I was feeling quite the neophyte. I was like, yes, I'll be glad to talk to you. He said, <laughs> "Do you do you think I was too hard on them? was that too hard on everyone? I feel like I was very hard on them because he was just saying, it's not enough, not just mindfulness, not just snipers. must have compassion. You must address the heart. You must address ethics. You must address other beings. It's not just for yourself that you do the practice. You do it for all beings, you know, because mindfulness can be perfecting one's own individual meditative practice and way of approaching the world. And you feel like very smug or arrogant about that. And he was sort of calling all of that out and saying, this is not good, Americans. American (laughs) meditators are too egotistical. So he was like, do you think I was too, hard on them? And I said, no. Uh,
2: uh-uh. That was
3: amazing. I think that's one of the most important things I've ever heard anybody say. And I'm really glad you got to say it to more than a thousand people because this mm-hmm. is very important because we've borrowed from Eastern traditions of yoga and Hindu traditions and Sufi traditions of the mystics and the poets. And we've borrowed deeply and heavily from Buddhism. Taoism, Zen, Confucianism, um, and then indigenous practices, paganism, uh, Celtic, Druid, all of this, Mm -hmm. you know, America Mm -hmm. is a melting pot of everything, including religion. And, but we do have a strong, rugged individualism as Americans. It is true Mm -hmm. to our national and individual identities. That individualism has led us to kind of borrow freely from all these religions and take kind of what suits us. And if what we think about is ourself, our immediate well-being, you know, our level of security and stability, our material possessions, well-being maybe of our immediate family, maybe some other small communities we're part of, we care about, maybe extended family. And then it it can stop there, being so individualistic in nature. We can really stand and say, well, meditation is going to help me deal with stress better. I might share Uh it with my closest friends. I might share it with members of my family. So it helps them. But we're just billions of people on this planet, and, and maps are artificially, arbitrarily drawn things. We are just all connected. So to have this practice that only focuses on oneself at the center of the top of the pyramid, the most important thing, and trickles mm-hmm. down to a few other people we care about, that's just falling short of what it should be, and it's falling um, short of what it was in most of those traditions. Um, mm-hmm. Those those other philosophies and religions, these were traditions about how one makes one's way among all beings, among all community among one's entire human family at the very minimum, you know? Hmm. And and we've borrowed from it and we've reduced it. We've winnowed it down to more of the um, individual path to success, Mm -hmm. individual path to enlightenment, individual path to being an amazing meditator. Other people can envy. You know, Americans are very hung up on this, keeping up with the Joneses thing. And now the Joneses (laughs) are meditating, so they're meditating too. Right. but that's so, that's, in, that's insufficient. So for me, it's very much about the collective, the social well-being aspect. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. J- Juliet, uh, I was a yoga teacher for 28 years and just uh, stopped teaching yoga when uh, the pandemic came and everything kind of closed down. I haven't gone back. And over those years, I also taught uh, meditation workshops. And what I always emphasis, emphasized was is the breath work as the center, because the center of yoga and center of mm. meditation for me, how does that play in um, what do you, you do and what do you have done, the, the, the breath?
3: Yeah, I um, tend to give a foundation of mindful training, which really anchors on the breath. It's the first focus of awareness to help one get back into the present moment, also get back into one's body. There's this wonderful uh, quote that I think is James Joyce that says, like, Mr. Darcy lived a short distance from his body.
2: And <laughs> oh, that's interesting.
3: <laughs> most people do live a short distance from their own bodies. You know, if, you, if you're if you driving in traffic and you have a near miss of an accident, all of a sudden your heart's pumping and you're gripping the wheel and you're in your body. And mm. that's weird because yeah. so often we're kind of lost in our minds. So I think the breath is this key um activity that's always happening like the heart pumping but people can't always sense the heart or the pulse but the breath can be sensed and it's always occurring so it's a way to come back into our own bodies to begin the practice because if we're mm-hmm. fragmented and disembodied we're going to miss whatever the contemplative practice is
1: then yeah, my next question is what about the heart
3: yes heart. <laughs> Oh yes. The heart is my favorite thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. what it represents and, and what it can do for us. There's a beautiful book that I really recommend to folks that's called from mindfulness to heartfulness.
4: Mm-hmm. And it's,
3: it's, it's by Stephen Murphy Shigamatsu. And um, he's a trained physician who's done work in hospice. And he talks about his life as um, the son of Japanese and American parents, uh, sort of first generation, mixed race and identity and heritage and taking the mindful practice into this heartful place
4: mm-hmm. of
3: the the character in Japanese uh, means both mind and heart. Huh. So mindfulness is actually mind heartfulness or heart mindfulness um, inherently in that language. But we only kept the mind part of that translation of that character Um, and so really the heart is always balancing the mind and um a friend of mine that leads a lot of um chanting and uh toning and mantra and mudra work she talks about hridayam which is heart consciousness and and we call each other hridayam sisters because we are we are both very deeply committed to what the heart
2: adds Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: because the mind, the mind has a place of awareness and analysis, um, but the heart can just connect and exist, can merge into equanimity, merge into the field of awareness, merge into existence and connection with with other beings. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's key for me, mm-hmm. and I I'm still exploring all the ways that that one can communicate that.
1: You know, the, the heart and math uh, organization researchers say that the heart actually sends more signals to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. It's, it's, it's yes.
3: And yeah. another thing that I have heard is that the electromagnetic sort of strength, the field around the brain, is one-fifth as strong as the field around the heart.
2: Oh. Wow. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so
3: if, we, if it, those who see auras and perceive energy of other beings probably are clearly able to perceive that difference, that there's actually much uh-huh. more coming from the core of our being um, in the chakra system, it would be all, all you know, that sort of root through throat chakras mm-hmm. um, and the hearts there in the center between, you know, solar plexus and throat and that the field is kind of radiating out from there, not from the mind. And, and since the enlightenment, you know, and rationalism became the big thing in you know 1600s or whatever, we've really gotten obsessed with what the mind can do. And the mind is nifty and it can do some great things. But we have this whole rest of our body. And, um, and the heart is driving all of it. You know, when the heart doesn't pump for just a few seconds, the mind is immediately starved of, of its oxygen. So, I mean, the heart's the, the, the real engine of
2: all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question. Julia, have you ever run into any planetary impacts? People mm. who, who feel... Rob and I have been looking into this for probably 10 years now. And there are a number of people who feel... The approach of a disaster, for instance, like a volcano or an earthquake, Uh, sometimes hours, but sometimes Mm -hmm. days before it happens and they develop physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, Have have you ever come across anything like that?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, in the Coincidence Project, that's one of the types of um, intuitions Mm -hmm. or shared experiences, collective Mm -hmm. experiences that often can be kind of reconstructed. People uh-huh. don't know who else is feeling it and so right. they feel isolated in their distress before major world events. But um there's a section on it actually in, in Bernard Beitman's book, Connecting with Coincidence, on these world on the disasters uh-huh. and the premonitions, uh-huh. the the pre-symptoms right. and pre-sentiments and dreams um mm-hmm. that happened, you know, before the Titanic sank and they've happened right. before major cataclysms in World War One, World Two. And I, you know.
2: I don't But I'm, don't I'm, talking, about specific, physical, I'm yes, talking about physical physical symptoms. They they feel physical symptoms. They have, you know, their ears bleed, their nose bleeds, mm. they feel anxiety. What are some of the other ones? They develop stomach ailments. And some yeah. people were actually got it down to I mean, they don't know where it where it's going to be located.
1: It's not a happy attribute. Yeah, it's, it's not, a happy happy thing. not happy. <laughs>
2: <campers>. <laughs> yeah, um,
3: I have not gotten to personally talk with people with those, but I certainly have have read about the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that happened early on when iPhones got really big is they started a collective um dreaming app and allowed people to log their dreams and what were happening for the first time. there was like masses of big data about what yeah. people around the world dream. Uh-huh. and 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 there were major trends. Mm-hmm. And the military shut that down quick
4: and well, now it's oh, hard to really? even
3: find it's hard to even find the record of the fact that this dream app was ever done oh, um my my geez. brother my brother can can be sort of put into a pigeonhole of be saying he's a conspiracy theorist but we've decided that's so judgmental and narrow that he's actually a suppressed knowledge specialist S K S. So my brother, my brother is a suppressed knowledge specialist, and he <laughs> oh, reads. Funny. He reads all kinds of Freedom of Information Act original documents that get released by military, by FBI, CIA, you know, but also like Masonic stuff and and uh-huh. and, and those of individuals. And there were um, two guys in Australia that had a podcast about weird and strange phenomena, and they covered the Dream app. Um, not too long after militaries had shut it down and and, like it ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it seems to me, I wish it would be returned to the world because there are probably many, many of these planetary empaths Mm -hmm. and their, their symptoms are probably getting misdiagnosed. We have all this chronic stuff now, chronic fatigue syndromes that are so common to people. And I feel like some of this is just people's, um, our intuition, our telepathy, our Uh empathy, um, and and we don't have shaman anymore. We don't have the guides and seers and mystics to help us interpret our experiences and say, Yes, this is not a personal phenomenon. Your body's well. Um, mm-hmm. you're picking up on something out there and your body's manifesting or demonstrating yeah, it.
2: Exactly. And mm-hmm. and we've lost that way to to read what's happening to us, which I think is really tragic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on our blog we have one section just on planetary impasse, and there are hundreds of mm-hmm. of different Things that people have reported.
1: Yeah, we've kind of over time. Over time, yeah. Uh, the question I have is kind of relates to this. Uh, what we've just been talking about is how does compassion relate to your work with the Coincidence Project?
4: Yeah, it's a great
3: question. So, you know, I had an opportunity early in 2020. Everything was just shifting like crazy with pandemic, and I'd been um, friends for for a number of years with with Bernard Biteman who wanted to create this sort of global movement called the coincidence project and he, you know we talked from early on he was like but i don't want to pull you off your path if your focus is really on getting um contemplation especially compassion out mm-hmm. into the world so let's make sure that these are compatible for you
2: mm-hmm. um that sounds like burning another pisces <laughs>
3: yes yes absolutely it's it's good working with a fellow pisces cuz like we can do yeah. all, all these things really openly and we like to kind of <laughs> process and like deal with things and it's not like an issue and it doesn't bring up tension we just feel so good when we get something kind of talked mm-hmm. through so we um we i started writing a little bit of um thoughts out about how does it connect to mindfulness how does it connect to compassion with coincidences and you know as you as you begin to experience as, uh, experience a lot of different coincidences, whatever type it might be, it might be that you're looking at serendipity and how that leads to creativity and discovery. It might be this mm-hmm. sense of really meaningful coincidences, you know, synchronicity, living in the flow, being able to follow like signs and symbols and just things unfolding as they should. However, people think of that, um, it helps you to feel anchored in a meaningful universe,
4: mm-hmm. in a
3: and that there's something looking out for us, some phenomena of just the fundamental way reality works. We are interconnected. We are interdependent. We help each other. Um, We can get signs and symbols from being out in nature. From the animals that we encounter, the, the species we encounter, or the way we interact with animals. Um, so, for me, it's very much not just all, coincidences, are also not just a human phenomena. Right. Meditation and compassion for me, not just a human phenomena. Mm-hmm. This is all my work is about all beings. And I think coincidences and being in the flow and synchronicity can help us see visible, tangible. Um, interactions that lead to huge improvements or changes or experiences that one learns from. Maybe they're not always positive, but we learn things from them that are just part of the progress of our lives. So coincidences can help us come into more awareness of interbeing. And interbeing and interdependence are core principles within a compassionate view of the universe. So I think they're they're very compatible. They're not the same thing, but they are Mm. compatible.
2: kind of ways
3: to help increase consciousness or increase how humans are experiencing our reality.
2: uh, I I meant to ask Bernie why he calls it the coincidence project instead of the synchronicity project.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, The synchronicity uh, folks that study and think about that, they usually don't really think about the serendipity types and um, they might not think about something like simulpathy, which
2: is more mm-hmm. of
3: like a para, parapsychological or psi. Yeah, can you d-
2: can you define? Yeah, those explain things? about yeah. Bernie's father, that whole yeah, story about yeah, how this. So
3: the simulpathy is the pathos feeling and simul at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 that fundamental principle of empathy I was talking about. That we have the right. capacity to feel the pain of another at the same time. But simulpathity is more like telepathy in that you can't see them and you you may have no way of knowing what's happening, but all of a sudden you feel a physical symptom or an emotional symptom, mm-hmm. and it turns out it belongs to a loved one at a distance. And so people often intuit that a loved one is in danger or is upset or is hurt, and then they, they scramble to find that information, or the information comes to them later, and they can put it together. Okay, I was feeling it. The precise moment my loved one was going through a very strong experience, I was having, I was feeling the same type of strong experience, and it had nothing to do with what was happening for me. It
2: literally was just their experience happened to me. That happens a lot style. with parents and kids. And and twins in, as well. Yeah, Twins. twins.
3: Yeah, yeah. live next Rhine. door to twins. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. The Rhine Institute, that used to be part of Duke University, is now unaffiliated. You know, they do a ton of research into para- parapsychological right. phenomena, sign. They've really focused a lot on twins because there's so much ESP documentation, telepathy, mm-hmm. clairvoyance, and psychopathy kinds of phenomena that we can document amongst twins. And You know, I think we can cultivate these um, abilities in ourselves over time. They may have been abilities that humans, um, before we became a technological society, actually had very strongly. That, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way Aboriginal um, Australians, the Aboriginal Australians navigate the world, the the way trackers like the Bushman trackers in Africa would find specific, they would have trackers that like... I, I speak to the jaguar, I know where they are. I speak to the antelope, I know where um, they are. I speak yeah. to the lions, I can find the lions. They were not often, they didn't always have multiple species, but they could attune deeply to a particular species to, mm-hmm. to figure out where they were in space. And I think this is an extension of what we're talking about with simulapathy, to be able to sense where people are um, there's a related phenomenon like bumping into somebody that you know unexpectedly. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the kind of coincidence that happens to me all the time. Bernie Bernie Bernard Biteman, I just call him Bernie. He's labeled that human GPS yeah. that we can navigate towards people without knowing that we're doing it consciously. And that was he, even like I found Matthew Ricard in a crowd of like a thousand people.
4: And yeah, I like somewhere. somehow
3: find him in the dark. And it was like really hard to see it were like little candlelights and like moonlight on the bay it was like very dark and i still found this man and had a really cool exchange with him
2: so that's like a human gps type phenomenon and Um, bernie said that that came from his dog having gotten lost when he was (laughs) eight and a half which i thought was so fascinating i mean the dog gets lost and bernie goes looking for him and he gets lost and yet they all found their way home and that's how his whole idea about that inner gps started when he was a kid (laughs) yes
3: yes because he he thought that his dog Snapper would have taken a certain type of path. Right. But then, but then he lost his way and was like, oh God, I was getting really distressed because now I'm lost and Snapper's lost and he turns a corner and Snapper is literally running towards him <laughs> from the other side of that street so cool. and it was like, he got lost to get lost and find his dog who was lost and then they were both found. So it's just like this beautiful, it's <laughs> beautiful story. He's created, he's created a coincidence song about it. He has some oh, that's songs great. he's created um, about snapper and the one, the simopathy story happened to him when he was in his, I think it was in his twenties. Um, he was living in California and his father was um, back East and, mm-hmm. um, and, and died, choking on his own blood and bernie inexplicably two in the morning in california time started choking uncontrollably on nothing like there was nothing there Mm he wasn't in the act of eating or drinking but all of a sudden he couldn't clear his throat and he was choking choking um and it was just really weird and disturbing and he went to sleep he didn't know what it was about and then in the morning when he woke up his brother had called to say uh father died around 11 o'clock last night Mm -hmm. east east coast time so it was like even with the time difference it was simultaneous and so that's what we call simopathy. Huh. So the reason to call it the coincidence project instead of simopathy or synchronicity or right. is because coincidence is the biggest term. It can hold all of these types. And we don't want to privilege one type of, of ex- experience over another. We want something expansive enough to
1: include all of it right.
3: and to explore it- and increase uh, our understanding of all of it.
1: Yeah. One of the things that a lot of people say, uh, randomly is, is that i don't believe in coincidence there's no such thing as coincidence which is a very very strange thing when you think about
4: it it's <laughs> <laughs> strange mm-hmm.
1: but.
3: absolutely and 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 also when they just when people say it's just a coincidence
4: right right oh, yeah. annoy <laughs> <me> so much <laughs> yeah
3: I, the, I was um on another podcast um with a, a delightful man his name's greg dukeson and in england and he's just started up a new podcast and i think if i'm recalling correctly he actually named it just a coincidence and he's going to be interviewing people around all forms of coincidences um, to kind of dispel the notion of just just kind of minimizes it so people say oh it doesn't even happen or they say it's just a coincidence um and you know some people don't want to, to accept that we live in a meaningful universe Really? So it doesn't matter if things yeah. are happening that could provide some evidence that we do. They have a very strong stance. They've already pre-decided. Um, it's a random, you know, it, it, it's just scattered chance in a random chaotic universe where trillions and upon trillions upon trillions of things happen. Anything can happen at the same time.
2: And so that there's just like- no meaning to it. Somebody so, like yeah. uh, Michael Shermer has that incredible synchronicity. And oops, for about two months, he was a believer.
1: Yeah, I think uh, maybe more than a year, he yeah, believed maybe. that uh, in that. Uh, Are you familiar with that, uh, that story, Juliet, about uh,
4: I Michael don't know. Shermer? I don't know. Okay. Tell, He's tell the story. skeptic. Right. He, uh-huh.
1: He's a editor of Skeptic magazine. He also writes for Scientific American. Right, and yeah. in Scientific magazine, he has a column. And one time, in the column, took a very strange turn when he talked about his his marriage. Uh, he married a German woman who was kind of sad because her family was in Germany, and uh, her grandfather was she was very close to. Had, it was. Uh, had died. And so she, uh, his family was there, but she didn't really have any family. She, uh, but she did have this uh, radio that uh, her grandfather had given her. And, but it she, it had worked. It had worked. It, it, it never worked. But there on the day of the marriage, this love song came on that radio uh, that was. Uh, in this uh, this room uh, outside of where they're they going, they put in the dresser, I think. They yeah, <laughs> right. And she just broke down and said, "He's here. My f- grandfather is here." And that radio worked for about an hour uh, uh, before the the marriage, and then it stopped working. It never worked again. But uh, it was. It was something that he was, he's this great disbeliever in anything paranormal, uh, anything like this. But he was struck by this. It that It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it, it, it really blew his mind. And so he wrote about it and said, we have to think about this. But then about a year or so later, <laughs> no, no, that's not, no, there's nothing to it. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, I have heard that story before. I might have even heard you guys tell it on one of the times Bernie interviewed you on his yeah, yeah, coincidence so. podcast. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, yeah, as you were telling it, I, I was remembering those, those details. So magical. You know, yeah. the radio came alive and played a, a particularly meaningful love song for the wedding. Right. And, um, you know, I, when I was. For years and years and years, I carry, I've always carried around a little pocket journal. And one of the things I collect are interesting quotes. And I've been doing this since I was uh, like 12 or 13 years old. My mom was a writer and taught creative writing. So I, I learned this from her and some of the writers she would have come talk it to her classes. Like just carry a journal and ca- capture things. And I remember when I was probably about 14 or 15 years old at um, a gathering of a few people from high school at someone's home. And there was this fellow named James Olchak. James Olchak, if you're out there, I still remember you. He was, the, <laughs> he was the biggest skeptic that I, that I knew. I mean, he just loved to poo-poo everything and he had, he was a very smart person and he could like really give you a lot of language around why he was so right about everything he thought at all times. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is a skill many white men in America have. I've noticed Yes, it, it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, so we he was debating about something and, and he was he was just so clearly wrong. And like we had enough evidence. We were all sort of like debating back. I don't remember even what the topic was at all. I have no idea. Um, but he said, look, at the end of it, he said, I'm not going to change my mind just because I know I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, quote book going down in my quote book. And it's still there to this day. I have all oh, my, my little crazy. journals with all my quotes and I have James Olchak from high school. I'm not going to change my mind just because I know I'm wrong. <laughs> and I think like uh, America in the post-truth era, here we are. Yeah. You know, we're not going to change our mind just because we know we're wrong. If yeah. we have a worldview that we wish to defend at any cost, that that we need to be a skeptic, say like this man. Mm-hmm. I need to be a skeptic, my identity, my professional well-being, my livelihood, the money I bring home, um, the reason people think I'm so smart and cool, you know, so exactly. much of our identity wrapped up in our work it's all around a position he's already taken it's a it's a foregone conclusion and this is a problem in research too that scientists find what they're looking for they end game everything humans want to end-game things we we want to find um evidence that that proves us right yeah and we like mm-hmm. to discount evidence that proves us wrong and so for a period of time he was capable of of maintaining a a memory of something that happened that was evidence that he might be wrong. And over time, (laughs) it was like, I just can't keep holding this because my position is so firm and it's so much more important to me than this piece of evidence that I'm just going to discount it. And people simply do that. You
2: know, offering a million bucks if anybody can prove to him that telepathy is real or any kind of psychic stuff. And he still Mm. has a million bucks. (laughs)
3: Right, he's not yeah. going to change his mind necessarily, uh-uh. even no. if he knows he's wrong, and exactly. he's certainly not going to give away a million bucks if he doesn't have
1: to. Yes, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so, as working with the Coincidence Project and telling people of what you do, uh, people probably ask you, "Do oh, you have a good coincidence? Do you have a good synchronicity?" <laughs> what's your favorite? You can, what, what's your favorite? Uh, <laughs> and so we're asking that question. <laughs> Is there something that comes to mind? <laughs> reveal, reveal. Yeah. Oh,
3: yeah, you know, actually I was thinking of of several and I've told I've I've been on um Connecting with Coincidence podcast with Bernie a couple times, so I've told some there. I'm not gonna tell the same one. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I went to Italy and had this really, really magical uh, experience in in 2001, I was able to go and tour. I was doing my master's degree in voice at New Mexico State University. And the choirs, the combined choirs of New Mexico State were um, touring. And we got to sing in um, in Tuscany and in Venice. Oh, wow. And in the middle of the, that uh, 10-day tour, we had like a three-day off period. And there were group tours through to... Uh, Places like San Gimignano and Florence, but I had studied abroad in Munich and uh, as an undergraduate, um, from, from Guilford college, wonderful school, little Quaker college that I attended. And I'd already gone and done a trip to Florence and places around it. So I didn't want to do the group tours. And as I'd been, um, preparing to go, I decided to do an Italian movie, um, night with my friends to prepare and get excited about going (laughs) we picked like roman holiday and a more recent like 80s or early 90s movie with robert Downey jr called only you and and some other italian movie every movie that we picked it might have been under the tuscan sun but every movie we picked they went to positano on the amalfi coast uh it was like these random movies from like one's black and white and one's modern and you know everybody Uh. keeps going and all of italy that all the people went to Positano then when I was on the tour bus my guidebook kept falling and every time it would fall open to this beautiful photograph of the oh winding God. cliffs <laughs> and the, the houses built up the cliffs over the you know the blue Mediterranean Sea and it, of Positano like the book kept falling open and so I was like I think I'm just supposed to go to Positano <laughs> I, every like everything's telling me I have to go there and so um one of the other people on tour was like, well, I don't want to have a typical tourist experience and I think you're not going to have that. So I'm going to go with you. And <laughs> um, and, and then another friend um, threw in. So three of us decided to go. And we had to get up at 4 a.m. and take a taxi to the train station, take a train to Sorrento. From Sorrento, we had to take a bus to Amalfi. And Amalfi, we were able to get on uh-huh. this little speedboat for like, five dollars it was in lira then they hadn't gone to the eu um yet and it was like the equivalent of five dollars take this little speedboat up the amalfi coast from amalfi to positano to get there Uh and so it took it took us all day and by the time we got there um everything was closed in between
4: lunch (laughs) lunch and dinner
3: it is just not america and um There was nowhere to eat. We hadn't eaten since all day, like the night before we got up at 4 a.m. And we'd never we'd never stopped. We kept changing forms of transportation from the cab to the train, to the bus, to the speedboat, to the shore. And it's built up the cliffside. So we're walking up steps and trying to find (laughs) a hotel. This is also pretty much 2001 pre-internet as well. So Mm -hmm. we did not have accommodations and every like the hotels were all booked and um all cost four and five hundred dollars a night which i mean i was a poor (laughs) graduate student i was looking for you know like a thirty dollar a night hostel (laughs) plot somewhere and we're getting more and more exhausted slogging up this hillside and none of the restaurants are open so finally we get almost all the way up the the cliffside, and it winds back and forth it's serpentine so you're climbing up and across and up and across Mm. and we get to this place and um they had just opened for dinner and we were like, oh my gosh, falling on our knees, please give us pizza.
2: And then, and
3: then we, we go in and, um, the owner's name, uh, was salvatore and i had worked at an italian restaurant called elizabeth's and the owner's name was salvatore and i was like okay. oh you remind me of my over salvatore he was like oh this is amazing and gave us pizza and then we walked outside and there were some some locals just sitting at the cafe tables uh smoking cigarettes and looking out over the beautiful beautiful sea um from these cliffs of of positano and um nobody spoke any english so luckily i had a a little bit of novice level italian so i'm speaking italian with them and i expressed that we don't know what's going to happen like we've we've stopped at every place we could find they're too expensive to start with but we hadn't found we'd found like one room and it was like four hundred dollars and three of us together didn't have four hundred dollars to sleep that night and we were were planning to stay two to three nights you know to be there and so so we literally did not know what to do and so I, i tell these these wonderful locals out. I have a photo of them. They just were so Italian, so older Italian men, you know, sitting there smoking their cigars. And, so <laughs> and um, I said, I don't know what to do. I think we're going to end up having to sleep on the beach. <laughs> and one of them stands up in Italian. I wish I could remember the full way he said it in Italian. I could understand it, but I can't remember how to say it. Um, he said, no, 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 this is ridiculous. Juliet, she does not need to sleep in the street. <laughs> and he didn't say the beach. He changed it from the beach to the street. But he was just like, he, they, they all they all liked me. Italians love me because I have this big heart. I love to talk to people. I'm very open. And uh, and I'm very passionate. And I talk with my hands. You know, my friends who are Italian are like, you're honorary Italian. You talk with your hands. <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys can't see me because I'm sitting, at, you know, without a video. But I'm talking with my hands this whole time. And um, and so this man, he just stands up. And rec- this is ridiculous. Juliet, she shall not sleep, sleep in the street and he walks across (laughs) into this little cafe where we just had food and he comes back um with this beautiful old key and he's like la chiave and i'm like la chiave he's like yeah (laughs) so he's like come with me and he gestures so my friends and i we get up and um we go like around the corner down one flight of stairs around another corner because everything's serpentine with steps and um and he opens up this beautiful apartment that had like two bedrooms one of which had two queens another one had a king and a uh, full kitchen a living room a full bathroom beautiful balcony looking over Mm. the sea and um and i said uh what is this and he said for you and i was like wait what is this he said oh salvatore the restaurant he owns this place it's empty right now you stay here (laughs) and we are
4: like
3: No, wait, what? How much is it going to cost? How much? You know, quanto cuesta? Like, what's it going to cost? He said, uh, niente, niente. Like, don't worry about it. Like, don't, you know, it's fine. Don't, you know, and we were like, no, no, we could pay something. Like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. You just stay. You stay as long as you want to (laughs) stay. Saltori says it's fine. Gives us the key and he leaves. And we had a free place to stay the whole time we were there. So we stayed at three three nights. At the end, I went to return the the, the key to this wonderful old man who was probably in his 80s running the restaurant. Um And and I said, can we pay you something? He's like, oh, no, no, no. I said, I would like to pay you something. He said, okay, if you want to. And I said, okay, so is there a bancomat, which is like ATM um, in, in Positano? He says, no, Positano, no bancomat. Like the whole town in 2001 did not have a single ATM. And we had spent our cash on things like eating uh, while we were there. And <laughs> <laughs> and And so, in the end, I was not able to even pay him anything for having oh given his God. his two bedroom yeah. apartment to stay for free and um and he said, "You know, Julietta, uh you'll pay me next time. I'll see yeah. you again you know and <laughs> and I haven't seen him again I have been back to 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 Positano. I went two years ago, three years ago, and I went back to that cafe and it's a little gelateria now and it's owned by some <laughs> different people. But he was Aww. very old in 2001, but yeah. it was just so sweet. You know, karmically, I'm probably going to find this man again and I'm in his debt. You know, somehow I'll be able to pay Their life. Yeah,
1: that is yeah. a great story. So so the beginning of that story with the book falling, opening repeatedly, yeah, like that. that's uh,
2: a library. Uh, yeah, the, the, library the library angel. angel. Yeah.
3: Yes, the bibliomancy, you know, that the yep. books open and they show right. us things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Exactly.
3: And it was confirmed by the, the coincidence of multiple movies from different eras having characters go to Positano, which uh-huh. I didn't even know existed. I knew nothing about Positano before those movies um starting to leave on that trip. Mm-hmm. I'd been to Tuscany mm-hmm. previously and I just really hadn't researched the area, so I wasn't familiar with it. And oh my god, one of the most beautiful That's places on story. earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: One of the other things we wanna uh, talk to you about is about this vision quest that you had, that you went on. Can you talk about that?
4: <laughs> yeah, certainly.
3: So my my path as a contemplative, um, a lot of people that I know um, started with yoga or started with Buddhism, and that was kind of their, their doorway, their focus for a long time mm-hmm. in contemplation. And and my, my path is quite different from that. So I mentioned that I went to a wonderful little college, a Quaker college in North Carolina called Guilford. And Guilford, as a graduating senior, I decided to kind of give back to my my Guilford community by becoming a freshman orientation leader. And they mm-hmm. had these, like, outward-bound type experiences that that the students could sign up for. I had done one to go on ropes courses and whitewater rafting and stuff for a week before I started freshman orientation. I didn't want to repeat that, so I go through the whole sheet, A through Z. Under V, there it says Vision Quest. And I'm like, well, that sounds cool. <laughs> because,
4: um, like vision
3: quest, that does sounds neat. So I check that box. I put it as my number one choice. So I get to go on the vision quest as the like senior orientation leader to mentor the freshmen doing it, and my the guide that i went out with her name's alicia pinero she had trained with stephen foster and meredith little at the school of lost borders in southern california uh-huh. and stephen and meredith have written the book of the vision quest that's the title of it the book of the vision quest they have another book called the four shields that's about the medicine wheel mm-hmm. and they had studied with um i think particularly studied with lakota sioux elders who kind uh-huh. of blessed blessed the sharing of the quest process um taken from the traditional honoring of the of the their practice as a tribe but adjusting it adapting it to modern times because you know that young people as usually just men would have the vision quest experience and they would go Mm -hmm. out with very very little provisions maybe only a Mm -hmm. night not even Mm -hmm. very many clothes and if they returned after a set period of time a month a week whatever and didn't die then they were full adults of the tribe. Well, you know, right. modern modern vision quest is like not dying is not at all an option. Like you were <laughs> just like, that's an insurance nightmare. So you have to adapt the process that people take enough provisions that they're safe. Um, but the way that we did it was 10 days out on the land. We did it at Mount Rogers, very high elevation point at the border of North Carolina, Virginia. And um, for, for 96 hours, we went to a place we'd found outside of the base camp for solo and we're alone and we didn't pitch a tent. We had a tarp we could set up if there was moisture to keep us from getting hypothermic because the most dangerous thing for us in Virginia um, would be to get wet and cold. Um,
4: mm-hmm. if,
3: if you're doing vision quests out west, the most da- dangerous things are, are heat stroke and dehydration. Um, but in the east, it's it's cold, wet, <laughs> and hypothermic. Um, and so we had, enough, we had enough gear to protect us from that. And um, we actually spent two months preparing for the quest we went on our fall fall break we met every Mm -hmm. week for two months and came together as a small community to kind of mark what we would um take as our central question or topic Mm -hmm. of focus for the quest and then that ninety-six hours of solo time—you don't see another person. You're fasting. You're only drinking water. People that have medical conditions like hypoglycemia or diabetes—they can, you know, modify to take some level of of food, but to pare everything down to the simplest that's safe for you, to not endanger your life. But to right. kind of cut you, first, you cut away society. You go out on the land. You cut away. Uh, community because you're not even with your fellow questers at the base camp you cut away gear because you're not an attempt you know you just have you have your sleeping bag and you have like just a tarp and um, you cut away food so your body doesn't even have the forms of sustenance it clings to each of these things that you release you empty out and you make space for something else for an altered state Mm -hmm. experience and in that vision quest the first quest I kind of healed, I had experienced um, abuse as a child and I had kind of bifurcated. Um, I created like a separate personality um, that went through the abuse. And then I decided I was like, this golden child kid who's going to be smiley and like valedictorian and just overachiever and no one would ever need to look at me and even think is she okay has she gone through something shameful uh-huh. and difficult because I would just be like so overachieving that they would never even it would never even occur to anybody that maybe mm. I was a kid who was mm. ab- ab- like badly abused at home but I was and so I needed to reintegrate the the kid who went through the abuse I called her the doll I actually decided she was a living doll and she could have experiences but she didn't really have feelings so she didn't have to go through the pain Uh either like neither of us had to have the pain of the abuse so I would check out and I would just ask the doll to step in when things would happen and she went through the abuse and uh, but I could still feel that I was really kind of on the verge of schizophrenia (laughs) there's a wonderful (laughs) book there's a wonderful book called um I never promised you a rose garden that's uh, about uh, a young woman in an institution uh, yeah. and she has created a separate self. And I got really fascinated with psychology um, coming out of those years of abuse as I was an adolescent. I read a lot of stuff. I read like Freud and Jung and um and I read uh, like Go Ask Alice and Jordy mm-hmm. and Lisa and David and Lisa Bright and Dark. These are all sort of first person accounts that are taken from. From fact, and they're given into kind of like a storytelling version of uh-huh. people's psychological trauma, and so when I read, I never promised you a rose garden. I was like,
4: oh.
3: <laughs> so I'm actually like probably like one. I'm probably a little more trauma away from, like, overloading the doll and, like, literally splitting myself into two and, oh, and having a breakdown and getting institutionalized. And at the same time, I was, like, the president of four clubs, and I was in the youth leaders' forum of my, uh-huh. my city, and I, you know, was offered scholarships to, like, multiple colleges. And, you know, I really, I really did well at this whole, I'm just going to split it up and have a golden child and then this doll who goes through bad things. And so on <laughs> on my quest, you know, I said I'm going to find her. I'm going to reintegrate her. I have to be both. I have to have had my own experiences. I can't keep this all separate anymore. I have to Uh-oh. you know, just deal with that that traumatic experiences um, sort of thing, And but as a whole person. And on my last night, they call it the power night, I decided not to even use my tarp. I went up on this really high rock, which had very high wind. It was very cold, and it was kind of dumb. And risky and I had been fasting for close to 96 hours and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll climb up on this promontory and I'll sit all night for this power <laughs> night on this rock, you know, with the wind blowing. And I was just laying on the rock, wrapped in everything I had brought with me, still cold. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just watching the stars and I felt like Orion itself spoke to me that, the, that some a message came to me from the Orion constellation and mm. said, your medicine name is Heartwind Singing. Huh. At, the to- at the time, I only sang in choirs. I was way too shy and afraid to sing solo. I had a, a kind of a choir teacher in high school who was wonderful, but he kind of bullied me and, and embarrassed me in front of the group, when I tried out for a solo. And that convinced me I should never sing solo in front of anybody ever again in my entire life. <laughs> and, but I loved singing, and so I would sing in choirs. And I was like, when singing? That's so weird. So uh, two years later, I had helped with every Quest group, that went out after me. I would help prepare ceremonies and like talk to them and like mentor them and um talk to people's families that were nervous about their kids going out for 10 days on the land and you know, helping Alicia, the, the guide that I went out with. And so she said, you know, you've been here so long, and I've been doing this full-time nonstop for a number of years now. I think I'm ready to train someone else to become a guide. And it was both myself and my dear friend Kim Yarbre, who was the same, had been since she requested helping with multiple groups of questers. Uh-huh. Kim, Kim had actually helped more than I. She had gone to help hold base camp multiple times, which I had not done, um, because for for first aid purposes, there's always at least two people at the base camp so mm-hmm. that if anything happens, you can take care of people if they broke a bone or you know have mm-hmm. a panic attack or what have you. So there's there's safety checks and balances in the process. And um Alicia said, you know, I'd like to train you two to become guides yourselves. And so we went on another quest and our where we participated as questers, but we also held the space differently for the the other younger questers as trainees. And after that, Kim and I started teaching together and giving talks together. And um we ended up we led a vision quest, we co-led a vision quest of our own that students that had taken our class then went out with us later and on my second vision quest when i was training the thing that i that i took as my core purpose or question or topic of the quest was that medicine name because i was like i don't i don't get it i don't why am i heart when singing most people (laughs) i knew were like um running bear you know like she who moves with the wind you know or little creek creek. (laughs) like they usually had a creek or an element or an animal and mine was the heart you know, heart, wind. So wind had an element. So at least there was something sort of normal about it from what I knew of medicine names. And singing, you know, and I, I wasn't a singer yet. And so it just it didn't make sense to me. And now it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> like the heart uh-huh. is the core of my practice. The wind is the communication on the breath and the, and the mm-hmm. air and, the, you know, that which allows us to sit here and connect with each other and go out over the airways in a podcast. And you know, and singing is, is another of the media through which I express this. I'll actually have a single coming out next month with my band. Oh. My, husband, oh, wow. my, my my band with my husband is called Unheard Sirens Inc. It's just my husband and I right now
2: and That's our producer, cool.
3: our producer JJ Williams, who's a, a genius. And um the song is called All We, All We Like All Us. And hmm. it's about it's about interbeing. I basically tried to put my the way I see the world uh, interdependently um, and the, the message of compassion like into a rock song. And so oh. we'll, see how
2: that, we'll go see how that goes. Well, let uh, us know when it comes out.
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This so, is exciting. I, you know, try to figure out how to bring all this stuff even into the, the rock music that I make.
1: Wow. You so, are an alpha female.
2: Boy, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) it's been great talking with you. Oh, this has been great, Julia. Thank you so much. Now, I want to know. I have one more question. When are you going to write a book?
3: Oh, when am I going to write a book? Yes, (laughs) do you have time? It's good to to write. It's good to know highly productive and prolific authors like you guys because you're (laughs) you're you're quite inspiring. I mean, it's it's very intimidating writing a book, but yeah, I mean, I, I. I, I definitely want to write a book that that's coming in the next uh, year or two years. Okay, good. I, I will have to um, uh, talk. With you got to kind of
1: hide bit. out to do that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so How, uh, retreating from the world. Luckily I work from home now and you know, yeah. and I, I, I work, you know, mostly I'm teaching mindfulness through another nonprofit called instill mindfulness based in Floyd, mm-hmm. Virginia, but we mm-hmm. teach a lot of things online. And so, you know, I'm doing classes, but not, you know like oh, every week or every other week things right. like that um leading meditation and cl- and courses for instill and um and then working on coincidence projects so and music is mostly on the weekends with my husband and um yeah and so there there's actually space so i might have well, to...
2: uh, do you have a website oh, where can people contact yeah. you <laughs>
3: um i i don't have a website yet because i was trying to kind of put all this together into a um a dossier that made sense in the pandemic hit and i've had to be s- it, it all looks so different than what i thought and a website feels so static and fixed and it's like here here is who i am and here's exactly what i do and here you know
2: yeah and
3: and and i've just been in this much more water-like mutable place that's like i just have to keep responding to to the pandemic and to opportunities and circumstances and i i don't know how to say something that fixed about myself right now uh-huh. okay so but, um, but
1: your but your phd was on networking network <laughs> <okay>. enablers
3: <laughs> yes, yes yes you should
1: be Sorry. all over facebook <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know, I have, I started a Facebook group that has 800 members. It's called Compassion Revolution. Okay, so, good. so people are welcome to find me under Juliet Trail on Facebook. And okay. I think you can find me on Instagram by looking up my name mm-hmm. and um, especially to join my Facebook group called Compassion Revolution, because I think we need to, to change the nature of every single aspect of our world and that the guiding principle to change it should be compassion. So that's, that's that, you know, a friend of mine um, once said, when the revolution comes, it should be beautiful we've had so many violent revolutions can we not mm-hmm. create and lead mm-hmm. a beautiful revolution so compassion revolution is
2: my my offering to lead a beautiful revolution that's okay. that great i love
1: it. it it's the
2: shift the spoken shift. like a exactly. true pisces my god you are so true to your sign <laughs>
3: <laughs> well i'm on the cusp i'm on the cusp of aries on march 19th so yeah well I that, have, that, I that that's your fire, leadership too. stuff yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, that's. I, I like your last name, too. Yeah, knock. I do too. You're on the trail. trail.
3: I love it. I know somebody said, "Did you take that name?" And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> "It was given to me. <laughs> I didn't have to take it. Oh, it was given." Funny. So yeah. yeah, I love that too. The path.
2: Yeah, yeah exactly. Hey, okay, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, thanks so much, Juliet. And we'll send you the link when it goes up.
3: That sounds great. It's wonderful okay. to talk with you both.
2: Good, good same, talking with you. Yeah, same with you. Okay. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.